So please, January 1st, 11th year celebration of Calvary Chapel Eldoret, your church. So anyways, I was discouraged. Um, I, I noticed that probably part of my personality, but mostly because the Holy Spirit lives in me and one of my practices for many, many years, really since I first got saved. And guys, I, I've, I've shared bits of my testimony. I, I think probably on Thursday evenings, uh, we have a midweek service. Our church, by the way, we don't believe that it's, it's enough just to do a Sunday morning in terms of how much Bible you need. So if you're able to attend, I know many of you are working and are unable, but if you're able to attend the Thursday service, I would encourage you to come out. Um, it's, it's a time of, spent in God's Word. But a part of my personality, um, and then because the Holy Spirit lived in me, I, I'm what you would call, I guess I've been called this, an extremist. And um, it manifested itself before I was born again in a lot of sin, a lot of wickedness, but extreme wickedness. Um, really no fear of things that I should have fear of, like injecting drugs into my bloodstream intravenously um, with the needle. And I remember being 14, 15 years old, I walk in a room, and there was some older gentlemen in the room um, using cocaine. They were using it intravenously with a needle, if you don't know what that intravenously means. And I just walked up, I said, hey, what are you guys doing? And they told me that they were doing, and I said, oh, do me, and I held out my arm. And they did, and it was a very powerful feeling, very dangerous, um, those things can kill you very quickly. But this was my lifestyle. Um, I was, I don't know if you guys know this, I know maybe if you attended some of our basketball games, you might see a glimpse of it, but I was a very violent man. Um, just I, very, very violent. It's, it's an addiction. It can, it's like a, it's like a bloodlust, which I believe that in many ways our culture has a bloodlust in the television uh, movies and the uh, series that we watch. But after I got saved, it manifested itself in an extreme idea of what I was supposed to be doing as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Some of it was very beneficial, other of it was legalistic, like um, having a standard of sharing the gospel, at least with five people a day, five strangers. I had these ideas, but I became discouraged several years into my Christianity and several years into pastoring this church with myself as an individual and corporately at the lack of change that happens to us. And really, if you study philosophy, if you've studied any form of apologetics and um, debates and uh, kind of a search for truth, which by the way um, is philosophy, it's a search for truth, that there is a belief out there um, that is contrary with, to what the Bible says, that 
people really do not change. Now, there are certain things you can do to modify people's behaviors. And that is, you can use coercion such as uh, fear tactics. Um, like the government did with the COVID pandemic, using fear tactics to try to modify our behavior. Uh, there's other ways you can do it. You can use a financial um, coercion to modify people's behavior. You can threaten to fire people. You can threaten to take away people's money. And when people are threatened with such things, they will tend to do what you ask them to do. It will, they will modify their behavior. If you tell somebody, if you're late again, you'll lose your job. Then for, well, I don't know if that'll work in Kenya. Huh. Maybe a different illustration would work. But maybe if your boss told you, if you're late one more time, you'll lose your job. And then um, that could modify your behavior. Though inside yourself, in your heart, your soul, that, as it were, you really didn't change in your thinking that you need to be on time. Uh, I'm not talking about you guys in church. I, I'm just giving it as an illustration. Uh, so behavior modification is very possible, and that's been proven. But there is a belief out there that people really internally never change. Now, that is not true. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12 that um, we can change. In fact, it says that we not only can change, but we have the free will to change through the power of God, which brings all kinds of debates um, it's that scripture that says in Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourself, your bodies, as a living sacrifice, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. It's not just discussing a transformation of the mind, but also a transformation of the entire person from the inside out so we know for sure and we agree that the truth is behavior modification is really not a change of heart and the most powerful and effective change is from the inside outward which the secular world especially the secular world um, the atheists, especially what we call, and I'm not trying to get too apologetic, but please follow me on this, I have a point, especially the naturalist, that, that is the person who doesn't believe in God, they just believe that evolutionary process, and we are just hardwired to be who we're supposed to be, and really, people will never change. Now, like I said, the Bible doesn't agree with that. The Bible teaches us that people can undergo a inward transformation of the soul and of the mind. And not only 
is it possible the Bible, and this is very important, teaches us that we have a free will to be changed. We don't have the power to change ourselves. But to put it simply, we can open the door to invite that transformation and that change. It's very important. And then you can get into the debate of how Reformed theology and... Um, you know, different types of theology. The, the, the Reformed theology say God will come in and change. There's no free will involved. Uh, that hyper-Calvinism um, and, uh, and, and just you are going to be who you are based on who God wants you to be. There's no free will involved in the change that you have, especially in the transformation of salvation. Now today... I'm not talking about the transformation of salvation. What I would like us to prepare our hearts to do, and this is an exhortation before we get into a Philippians 2 message, the transformation of really what some call sanctification, probably better biblically understood, to mature in Christ, to change from the inside out as you walk year by year as a Christian person. That's the discouragement that I went through a few years ago, maybe five or six. I realized something about myself. Now, though the Bible teaches us that transformation, both upon salvation and after salvation, that maturing process, that sanctifying process, and John 17, Jesus in his prayer says, sanctify them by your truth, for your word is truth. He's talking about those who are already believers. He's not discussing those who are becoming born again. So, we know it's possible. I think the scripture in 12.1 proves very clearly that we have a free will in it, but... Though it's possible and the secularists are wrong and the Bible's true and the Bible teaches us it's possible and one of the ways that we undergo change is by preparing our hearts each and every day to change. I noticed, and to get to the ultimate point of my discouragement was it is very rare to see change in the church. In fact, when you see change, the word that we use for it is revival. Revival. That sanctifying change. Can you turn me up just a little bit? It, I noticed it myself. It's, it's, I'm not just condemning, and I noticed it corporately. That people can get saved, and there's initially a change in their hearts, but really the manifestation of their personalities comes out, not really a sanctifying change, not really a holiness change, a righteous change. All that to tell you, I would like our church to focus both individually like me. I, I, I want to be different. I want to change. 
And I would like you to consider and us to consider corporately that our church needs a revival. This city needs a revival. And the way that revival happens is a transformation, an internal transformation, a transformation of the mind, a transformation of the heart, a sanctifying change. And the way that we do that is to, through our free will, open the door for the power of God, because we don't have the power to change, to enter inside the mind to enter inside the heart to change. A practical way we can do that, I'll borrow um, from a book that is a book that I would recommend anybody reading called Practicing the Presence of God. Is that when you enter into a devotional time, when you enter into a personal devotional time, that I hope you have each and every day, a time of reading your word. And if you don't read your Bible, you have to repent of that. You have to start doing it at home. But also, a corporate time of devotion, which is called the church, where we sing, where we read, where we pray, where baptism happens, all these things. You ever noticed how easily we can get distracted? That's why I believe in excellence of worship so deeply. Partly because of the weak mind that I have, and if the sound isn't right, I get distracted. I, by the looks of it, the way that you guys worship, you're much stronger than me when it comes to distraction. Um, I'm always very blessed by Kenyans when they worship through song. It always encourages me. That's why, though, I, because my mind is weak, I like, I like excellence in music. That way I'm not distracted with a buzz or a hum or this or that. You know what I mean? And, and last night I noticed, okay, even, I have to mentally, I have to, through my free will, sit down and worship God. I have to use my mind. I have to use my heart to open up the doors through free will to say, Lord, change me, mold me, make me, cleanse me. Now, the good news is that discouraging moment I had five or six years ago there was a time where we entered into a teaching of 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and I personally saw change both in my life and in our church. And I say that this morning, all of that is just an introduction to say, when you come into the house of God, and, and, and by the way, it's not this building, when you come into the body of Christ and we join together in all the elements, I would encourage you to come in with a humble heart, considering the possibility that you're wrong about 10 million th things in your life, and real change happens when we are corrected. 
And when we come in with the mentality, today I want the Holy Spirit to teach me. I want to be changed. I want to be molded. I want to be mended. I want to be changed according to the image of Christ. If you have that mindset, if you practice the presence of God, I believe you will see a revival both in your life and I think we'll see a revival in our church. Amen? There's a simple way to put this, and it's a common phrase amongst churches all around the world, by the way. Don't leave the same way that you did what? You guys know it. That whole 15 minutes was just to say that. (laughs) Don't leave the same way you came. That is a very biblical precept. It's a very biblical statement. Here in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, let this mind... No, no, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond slave and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and of every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This scripture is one of the greatest jewels in all of the Bible. John MacArthur says, it is a well that we can never reach the bottom of. It is a treasure that can never be measured. This scripture is just magnificent. And, 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 and it's a very interesting one. I, I don't have the time to do a proper exposition of it, but... This scripture, probably for at least the last six or seven out of the nine Christmases, and we always have at least two or three Christmas messages concerning this scripture, um, or we have three, uh, two or three Christmas messages because of all of the events we have, always this is one of them. This is, if you haven't heard me say this before, not the story of Christmas, but rather the theology of Christmas. Let me put it this way. This is a vantage point of Christmas from heaven's perspective. 
If you want to see Christmas from the earth the way humans will see it, then you will see Christmas found in Luke chapter 2, that story that was read last night. And we just touched a little bit on what the angels said. That story in Luke chapter 2 that talks about the census that took place of Cornelius and the, uh, they had to go to Bethlehem and um, the, uh, Jesus was born and the angels came to the shepherds and they told them that uh, uh, you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. He is the savior of the world. He is the Christ. He's the son of God. And then a heavenly host, a whole army, who knows how many angels, how many heavenly hosts. It doesn't even just say angels. You can combine cherubim with angels and all kinds of heavenly creatures that appeared before the shepherds and began to shout. We don't know if it was in song form. We don't know if it was a military type chant. But we do know the words that they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. We don't know if they said it once. We don't know if they said it 10 times. We just know that those are the words that they said. And if you were here last night, I read a passage of scripture out of 1 Peter chapter 1. And we read a lengthy passage of scripture, but when you get down to verse 12... All through verse, really one, all the way down to verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 1, it discusses the resurrection of Christ, it discusses the birth of Jesus Christ, it discusses the magnificence of who Christ is, and Peter ends that passage of scripture in 1 Peter chapter 1, um, towards the end, he says that these are the things that the prophets have looked into. Not only are these the things that the prophets have looked into, but who else looked into these things? You remember? Angels. Yes. Angels. And I'm just meditating on what the scripture is saying and pointing out last night. I mean, we had this event at our church um, a few, boy, I think it was last Sunday was the World Cup Finals, wasn't it? And we decided instead of all these people showing up at the, the bars and watching it, that we could show the, the World Cup finals on these projectors that God has given us. And at halftime, the gospel can be preached. You know, people, oh, they don't do that in churches. Whatever, I don't care. The church is not these walls, it's your heart. And we want the hearts of people to be born again through the power of the gospel. So we're going to, at least, I don't know, at least once a month, we've decided we're going to show football on Sunday evenings here at the church, and the gospel will be preached at halftime. How long is halftime of these football games? Yeah. Is halftime like 15 minutes? That's enough time to preach the gospel. If we go to 16 minutes, we're going to ruin it, you know. People are like, turn it back to the game. I'll get born again. I'll do whatever you say. But these angels, think about, think about the, 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 the statement in 1 Peter. 
things angels looked into. I mean, who knows? It's like, hey, there's a football match in Galaxy X about one trillion light years away. Do you want to go check it out? It's um, Gabriel versus Michael. I don't know. You're like, no, you know what? Gabriel and Michael won't even be there. Do you know why? They're looking into the things of humanity on earth. Because the Creator is interested in them. I can't, I can't make it. I got to go to earth. I got to look at I got to look what's going on here. I can't do it. So in Luke chapter 2, you get that vantage point of the earth, the story of, uh, of the birth of Christ. Here you get the theology of Christmas. You get the heavenly perspective of this God who's called Jesus Christ, who is the second person of the triune Godhead, who comes down. He lets go. And he comes to earth. Now listen, the reason I gave the introduction of maturing, sanct being sanctified, we need to leave differently than what we came. It's because the very reason that Paul, from Philippians 2 verse 5 down to that verse where it talks about every tongue will confess and every knee will bow... The reason he mentions this glorious incarnation, this magnificent true story of God becoming man is because there's strife in the world and there's strife in the church and there's pride in the church and there's selfish ambition in the church. And that's why he mentions the mind of Christ. Isn't that incredible? Think about it. Imagine a pastor coming into in Philippi, a, a strifeful situation, a divisive situation, a situation where people are fighting and quarreling and to the point where in the Corinthian church they're taking each other to court over issues. And he comes and he says, how can we fix this? Well... I am the Apostle Paul. I could just tell them, don't do it. I could just say, don't do it. I'm the Apostle Paul. Listen to me. Like oftentimes, moms and dads do with their children, right? It's like, don't do that. And, and, and when kids become of age, they say, what? Why? Why shouldn't I fight with my brothers or sisters? And... Oftentimes, when we're about up to here of answering the thousand questions that kids will ask in a day, what will we say, moms and dads? Because I said so. That's why I don't do it, because I said so. You know what? Sometimes you can get away with that, but I would encourage you, moms and dads, and I'm actually convicted by this myself, because my son is sitting right here, I need to say this that you need to give better answers than just because I said so, and take the example of Paul. Because I said so. Paul could have came in and said, stop fighting. Consider others better than yourselves. Let nothing be do, done through selfish ambition. Why? 
because I'm the Apostle Paul, and I said so. That's not what he does. What he does is far more brilliant, far more glorious and effective. He tells us about the God who considered us over himself. What right do you have to claim your rights when Jesus let go of the throne? Oh, I have a right to be treated with respect. Really? Because Jesus had a right to be treated with respect, and he was tortured to death. He was born to die. We want to be born so we can live. Paul, do you guys get the, the, do you get what is happening here? Stop fighting. Stop striving against one another. If there's any consolation of, in Christ, this isn't a question Paul is asking here in Philippians 2. If there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any mercy, if there's any love. This is a rhetorical question. It's not, he's not really asking, hey, uh, the Apostle Paul asking, hey guys, is there love in Christ? Because I don't know. Of course there is. Uh, is there mercy in Christ? Because I don't know. Of course there is. Is there consolation in Christ? Of course there is. These are rhetorical questions. And he says, therefore, if there is, let nothing be do, done through strife or selfish ambition. But in everything, through the lowliness of mind, consider others above yourself. And where does it start? Where does it start? The Bible mentions it two times in this passage of Scripture. Where does it start, guys? The mind. It says, it, 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 it says here, lowliness of mind in verse 3. And then in verse 5, let this mind. Where does it start? Internally. Internally. Man, you know you got to preach better when your own son walks out of the service, you know? Go ahead, Seth. It's all right. <laughs> Golly, what am I doing wrong here? You want me to jump off the stage? Let this mind. Where does it start? Where did it start with Christ? Where... Did it start with Christ and letting go of the throne of heaven? Listen, guys, it teaches us, let this mind being you, which was, in, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal of God, but made of himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond slave. The form, uh, taking the form of humanity, becoming human. A man. Where did it start? In his mind. Now, it didn't have a start in his mind. What I'm saying is, it was in his mind 
that he is able to come down. It's internal. It's internal, folks. It's internal, fellow Kenyans. That you have a mind that doesn't desire a respected reputation, that doesn't desire prominence, power, recognition, but desires for others to be built up and blessed. And it's a humble mind that does such a thing. You guys been offended with somebody? They offended you? And maybe it was a great offense. Maybe it was a a powerful offense. Maybe they really did hurt you. And who knows? Hopefully it's only a couple of hours or minutes. Not at all would be ideal. But you guys can relate to spending days thinking about how you don't like that person. Oh, I don't like that person. Oh, you know what? That person is just ugly. You know, you start coming up with names for them. I wish they'd fix their teeth. You know, this is... I, I, I wish they fixed their, 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 you know, why, guys, I, I probably shouldn't be transparent. I, I wish, I, I've thought myself, oh, th- this person thinks they're great and they, they do this to me. They've done nothing for anybody. Look at them. And you start, guys, listen, you even start judging their physical appearances. You start judging what? Who are they? They're nothing. They don't have anything. They're no one. And, and, and by the way, this is what's called bitterness. This is what's called en- envy, pride. And some of us get caught in the trap of years of hating people in your mind. I remember years ago, and it's so bad, it was this older guy. Even when I was using that illustration about the, the teeth, I thought that about this gentleman who, ironically, is from Britain. <laughs> if you don't understand the... Uh, okay, never mind. My, my wife said to stop from the back of the room. He, he, was, so, he was so rude to our church, especially to me. He, he'd, he'd come up and he would just criticize everything about me. Man, I, I would wake up in the middle of the night. And guys, I told you I have a violent past. I, I had fantasies of punching him in his face. It's like, yeah, let's see if he has any criticism when I knock the teeth out of his mouth. Let's see if he has any criticism when his jaw is broken and he can't speak anymore. I know that's wicked, isn't it? That's evil. You know what? I, I started making a practice of doing, and, 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 I, and I'm not perfect in this, but praying, when I start thinking such evil things, saying, you know what, I gotta pray about this. And I go to my knees and I start praying, Lord, what am I missing? Lord, what's up with this guy? And guys, some of the, these situations are real. Those persons are being divisive. They're, they're being rude, they're being mean. 
And and I'll go to pray. And you know what the Lord does to me every time? He reminds me of scriptures like this. It's like, oh, Josh, uh, you want to be respected, huh? Yes. And I should be. I've given these people my life. Guys, that was hard to even say because that's a dangerous thing to say. We had to fire a pastor. Probably 99% of you don't know who he is, so don't worry about it. You don't know him. It was his early years at Calvary. I had to fire this guy. And he said to me over the phone, he actually voiced what, what I think sometimes. And he said, I've given my life to this ministry, and this is the thanks I get. And I told him on the phone, I said, Christ died on the cross and came from heaven, and that's it. Give my life. I gave. It's a dangerous thing for a man to say, I've given my life. Is there any life greater than the life of Christ? Christ gave his life. We should never make mention or even meditate on us giving ours. Because ours is not as great as his. That's what Paul's doing. That's what Paul is doing, ladies. He's saying, guys, is there strife? Is there the seeking after reputation and respect? Is there vain glory? Is there selfish ambition? Stop it. Why? Because there's consolation in Christ. Because there's mercy in Christ. Because there's love in Christ. Because he, he was in heaven. And he let it go. To come to earth. He let it go. That's why we should stop. And you know, when I make it a practice to go to prayer, you know what the Lord shows me every time? Is there something wrong with me and I need to change? Charles Spurgeon said, if somebody comes to you and says something negative to you, just thank them. Thank them that they don't have the words because there's no words in the human language to communicate how terrible you really are. Filthy rags. No goodness, no righteousness, just pride and arrogance and greed and strife and selfish ambition and vainglory until that day where Christ came. And he was born. And he says, listen, I know you can't change on your own, but look at me. Look who I am. I came down from heaven. I was born in a, in a manger. I was raised in poverty. Raised in poverty. And by the way, it's as worse or it's as bad as Kenyan poverty, or worse, what the Jews were going through in Nazareth when Jesus was raised. 
born in Bethlehem, fled for my life. My parents had to actually go out in the middle of the night because Herod was going to murder me. And they had to go to Egypt. And then when, was it, when it was safe, few years later when it was safe, then we left Egypt, we had to go to a foreign land. I couldn't even live for the first few years of my life amongst my people because somebody wanted to murder me. And, and, and finally, I can go home to my people in Nazareth. And as I'm raised in Nazareth, we have to eat the poorest of food because he was raised in abstract poverty. And then when he started his ministry, after all of that, people wanted to throw stones at him. People wanted to murder him. People mocked him. People spoke evil of him behind his back. And then it comes the time where those people murder him. Those people who wanted to murder him, those Jews, Jews from when he was a baby, finally get the opportunity given to them by Jesus himself to kill him. And he's mutilated and he's tortured. And what does he say on the cross, ladies and gentlemen? Does he, does he start claiming his rights? You know what? You people wanted to kill me from the day I was born. I'm done with you. Oh, oh you made my parents flee to Egypt because you wanted to kill me. Oh, I had riches in heaven, and now we can't even afford a really good beef steak in Nazareth. Does he say those things on the cross? Anyone? No. What does he say? Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they're doing. I ask you this question this morning, ladies and gentlemen. What right do you have to claim any rights? What right do you have not to endure people who hate you with patience and love towards them and forgiveness and mercy? What rights do you have? You have none, because you and I are slaves. We're slaves. You see the progression here? Not only did he leave heaven, he abandoned that sovereign position. But he doesn't come to earth as a king. He comes to earth as a peasant. So he leaves he the highest place of heaven to come to the lowest place on earth. And, which is a slave. And not only that, it's not like he's going to live 
a full life as a slave, but then on top of leaving the highest place of heaven to come to the lowest place on earth, which is a slave, he comes to die. So that famous question, what does Christmas mean to you? Let me tell you, Christmas should only mean one thing to every human being on the earth. The Savior has come, and we need to repent of our pride and submit to His holiness, to submit to His glory. He is glorious, guys. He's so good to us. When you feel like your rights have happened, have been challenged, have been disrespected. You know, be changed by this, by the power of the example of Christ, of Him coming to earth, the incarnation. Be changed by that. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God did not consider a robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Christ every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord of heaven and earth and those under the earth to the glory of God the Father. Listen, guys. When Jesus says in um, John chapter 12, he who seeks to gain his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will gain it until everlasting life. It's not just talking about salvation. There is a principle to be understood here. That when you start claiming your rights, even though Jesus denied his, you will lose greatness, ladies and gentlemen. You will lose sanctification. You will not be changed. You will not be blessed. But when you give up your rights, when you humble yourself, when you consider others better than yourself, you will be exalted to positions that will allow you to have influence over people because you are walking in the mind of Christ. Does that make sense? Why is he glorified above everyone else? Because nobody has denied his rights to the point and to the degree and to the measure that Jesus Christ has. Nobody ever can because we're not God and we can never come this low. But, but you can deny yourself. You can deny your rights. You can give up your entitlement. And when you do, you'll be exalted. You'll be exalted. 
Guys, this can apply in marriage. So good. Oh, oh, that woman owes me respect. The Bible says so. That woman owes me submission. The Bible says so. You know, submit, woman. You know, I, I know none of you have ever said that to your wives. Anybody ever held out a Bible to their wives? It says it right here. Anybody? Or even worse, has anybody held out Ephesians 5 to their fiancés? says it right here. Fiancé, don't ever let him do that. You don't owe him submission until he becomes your husband. Okay. What if we gave up our rights in marriage and started blessing our spouse? You know what I hear a lot, children? We, we act like the pressure of all the family pressures in Kenya are, are the parents to the children, which, by the way, is, there's a lot of pressure from parents to children. Just recently, and, and, and I won't mention names, but just recently, a father told his daughter, who's an adult woman, that she cannot marry the man she wants to marry until she gets a job and a car. But you know what? I've also heard a lot of pressure upon parents having to pay school fees. It's like, hey, my parents, my, my parents don't pay my school fees. It's like, your school fees are beyond what they can afford. Go get a job in the mechanic yard and don't be so proud that you can't work with your hands. I think it's not just high time that parents stop putting ungodly pressures on the children. I think it's also high time that children stop putting ungodly pressures upon the parents here in Kenya. You know, I got an amen for the beef fry. I haven't got any other amens to... Oh, thanks. It's, it's, it's different when it comes after the fact. But I appreciate it. Guys, do you understand what the theology of Christmas have, has the Bible made its point? You have no right to claim your rights. You have no right to claim your rights. I almost want to get Pentecostal and have you turn to your neighbor and says, You have no right to claim your rights. Go ahead and do it. You have no right to claim your rights. Why? Because Jesus came and he was born in Bethlehem. He left heaven. And not only did he leave heaven, he lay, left the highest place of heaven to come to the lowest place on earth. Do you understand the theology of Christmas, ladies and gentlemen? Do you get it? Be changed by it. I, had a, I, I, I have people often confused on some of my responses to my critics. And I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. I, we have some more service. We're actually ending at 12 today, guys. Um, we want to do some more worship and we want to do some baptisms. Somebody wanted to be baptized on Christmas Day. Amen.
Um, I've been all around the United States preaching, and my, my pastor allows me to preach when he's gone um, in his pulpit. And there is a, people, you, you can't win everybody's hearts, you know. There was a, somebody in our church, an older gentleman, who started accusing me of being a snake. He called me a snake, even in America. It's not just Africa. I was called in a snake in America recently. He said I wanted to take Ken's empire, <laughs> my pastor's church. He, and we got, a, uh, we got some land down the road from our church, he, and he, he started saying these terrible things. He said he even bought that land by the church so that he can take over the church. He started saying things that are simply not true. About me, guys, can you imagine? And somebody who was working with him told, uh, he, he was telling him these things. So I told him, listen, go tell him that you told me and go tell him that I'm sorry that I was unable to win his heart, that I'm working on my pride and please forgive me for anything I've done against him. Now, listen, guys. I didn't do anything wrong to this man, but when I preach at that church, I am very imperfect. I probably say things I shouldn't say at times. I probably could do it with more grace. And I, I said this to this young guy who was working with him, he goes, no, I can't go say that to him. He's the one. He's the one who needs to apologize. Even, even some of my family members are like, you, you didn't do anything wrong. Why are you apologizing to him? Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why I'm apologizing to this man. Because there's nothing in the human language that this man can say that would describe how terrible I really am. You have no right to claim your rights. That's my Christmas message. Isn't it a cheerful one? Will the worship team come back on as we continue to worship the Lord today? There's only one king, and his name is Jesus Christ. There's only one highly exalted, anointed one, and his name is Jesus Christ. It is not you and me. Glory be to God. We thank God for this church. I am so blessed to be with you this season. We have a lot of work to do. But remember, don't, don't leave this year. Don't come in today and, and, and leave the same. Leave different. Open your heart to change. 